about to listen to a sermon from Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church. As a church, we want to see whole communities captivated by Jesus Christ and living out His freedom. Good morning. Great to be with you. My name's Matt, one of the ministers here. Let's pray. How, Father, you have spoken in your word, and how glad we are you have. Open the, uh, the ears of our inward hearts, and open the eyes of our souls, that we might see the Lord Jesus, hear your voice, and live. Teach us today, we pray to love, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we are continuing our look at the book of Deuteronomy. Uh, which literally means second law. It's a second iteration of the law in the, the first five books uh, of the Old Testament. And we come to what is probably one of the most famous passages in the Old Testament today, the Ten Commandments. I think even today they still have a little bit of currency. When Moses went up the mountain at Mount Horeb, Mount Sinai, uh, he came down with two tablets with ten words on them. And in these ten words was the whole way that Israel were to relate to their God in the land that they were to live. The whole rest of the law in Deuteronomy, Leviticus, and in Exodus, and in Numbers, uh, all of the other stipulations all kind of flow out of these ten things as a framework. This is the summary, action-packed statement of how to be God's people. And there is extraordinary power in it. Alan Debaton, who wrote an interesting little book called Religion for Atheists, says this, It is their form which is astonishingly concise and simple, a distillation of a mass of ethical thinking down to just a few robust rules. We're in truth creatures who, for the most part, crave for things to be laid out succinctly for us so that we know exactly where to look and what to do amidst the ambiguous and chaotic conditions of existence. It's really good to be able to number things on your hands about how to live, right? There's something about our human condition and the complexity of life that makes that really beautiful and really simple. But what Alan goes on to say is how the Ten Commandments, uh, as Aaron Deuteronomy, are a little bit outdated, actually. And as we produce them in ancient times, so we should produce some more. And there have been a lot of people trying to do that. Uh, here's a CNN uh, summary of uh, a little thing that a society did recently. You can just rove your eyes among them. Ten uh, these are uh, the commandments for atheists, Ten Commandments for Atheists. But as you look at these, they're interesting. I find them fascinating. There's a lot about rationality, scientific method, controlling your body. Uh, and in some ways, there's good things here. But I wonder whether you could actually build a society on these ten things. Because the reality of the Ten Commandments is that Western democracy in so many ways is built on them. They have the moral backbone to build a world. In a way, I think these are good, but maybe don't. I think number nine is the most complicated of them all. There is no one right way to live. Okay, there's ten things you need to know. The ninth one is there is no things you need to know. Interesting stuff. Uh, Marilyn Robinson. I wrote a book called Gilead, and uh, she describes this book uh, as a father explaining to a son how to live out the Ten Commandments. And it's a stunningly beautiful book. And really, she captures in lots of little ways what I think 
uh, Elaine is missing about the Ten Commandments. Let me give you a sample that really unpacks it. Here, uh, the old pastor, John Ames, is ex- uh, describing a moment where he meets a child. There is nothing more astonishing than a human face. You feel your obligation to a child when you've seen it and held it. Any human face is a claim on you because you can't help but understand the singularity of it, the courage and the loneliness of it. But this is truest of the face of an infant. I consider that to be one kind of vision, as mystical as any. She's, she, what she's doing beautifully, simply, the, the, the wonderful mystery that is another human life. That has to it a beautiful gravity and transcendence. That mere rationality does not seem to dictate. And, and what she's articulating here is the vision of the Ten Commandments. What the Ten Commandments do, and the reason why they have a f- profound impact on Western civilization, is they have a unique view of the value of humanity before Almighty God. And there is nothing like them in impacting the way we do life. In terms of summarizing what they're about and the way we'll unpack them, I think I'm going to go with the Lord Jesus, if that's okay. He said that if you wanted to sum up the commandments, he said, simple, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength, and love your neighbor as yourself, all the law and prophets. That's his executive summary of the executive summary, in case you're wondering. He's allowed to do that because he's the Messiah. Um, so that's why we're going to unpack the commandments today. And what I want to do is unpack them uh, to show you how it is that this beautiful vision that Marilyn Robertson has is actually true in what we have in the Scripture today. And we're going to unpack it in two halves. We'll think about loving God and loving neighbor. And then I want to ask a question about the problem of our loves. Love God, love neighbor, problem of our loves. First of all, love God. You'll notice that the first four commandments are in the vertical direction. They are very much an unpacking of what it is that Jesus talks about when he says, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, which is helpful because when Jesus says that, immediately you think, I don't know how to do that. And really, the genius of what Jesus says when he talks about loving God is that it really makes sense of the human existence and the human problem. You know, although the the Ten Commandments for Atheists was rational and scientific, let's be honest, this morning, rationality has driven very little of what we've done. And my wife reminds me of this frequently, that rationality often doesn't drive us. Love drives us. And if you don't guard what you love, you are not guarding your life. You can guard your mind, but if you don't guard your heart, your loves, you do not guard your life. And so the greatest commandment is to look out for what you love most. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And so in the first four commandments, how we do that? I'm going to give you three things about how you love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The first is this. Trust God's goodness for your happiness. Trust God's goodness for your happiness. Chapter 5, verse 6 reads, I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. It's a simple opening, isn't it? It's a call to exclusive loyalty to the God Yahweh, the God who has saved them absolutely alone. 
He goes on to be described in verse 9 as a jealous God who's looking for covenant faithfulness from his people exclusively. Now, it's important to notice at this point that when these ancient treaties were made up, and this is kind of a typical ancient treaty, the Ten Commandments, they were often made between a conquering party and a conquered party. A king would come in and ransack a place, and then he would lay down the law, literally, and say, well, you're my people now, here are the ten things you must do, otherwise you will die. Just as I ransacked you, I can wipe you off the face of the planet. Conqueror and conquered. But did you notice how it's different here? I am the Lord your God who conquered you. Do what I say. No. I'm the Lord your God who brought you up out of Egypt. Out of the land of slavery. The God who has been good to Israel. Who in their moment of poverty, enslavement and brutality and harshness and bitterness. Not only saw, not only heard but acted and brought them out. Out of slavery, out of harm to a good and a better place. What they're being summoned to is to trust in the God who has been good to them. It makes sense, the first commandment. There is no other God who has acted on Israel's behalf. And so God says, have no other gods before me. Have no other gods in front of my face. No pantheon for you, Israel. Just me. Because I am the God who, when you trust me, when you show me love, I show love for thousands of generations. When you trust my goodness, I have your back. You need no other gods before me. And so have no other gods before me. You see, the problem we have is that we walk out into life aware of the goodness of God, and then life gets complicated and we hedge our bets. I am not sure that the goodness of God will uphold me, so I need this money. I need this person, I need this place, I need this thing, I need that time. We hedge our bets and our God says to us, you don't need anything else. Trust my goodness for your happiness. I provided for you in the past and I will again. So trust God's goodness for your happiness. But the second thing about loving God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength is that it has to happen on his terms. On his terms and not our own. Second commandment says, you shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above or on earth beneath or in the waters below. See, the first commandment was about the who of worship. The second commandment is about the how. Ancient people would always make images. They create things and they embody their God in a piece of creation in order to worship it. And in doing that, they were taking their religious worship into their own hands. But the second commandment is the word against every religious practice that is made from human hands. God says, go into heaven, have a look around the earth, look in the waters. There is nothing like me. And the moment you you make me look like a a calf or a tree or a dollar sign is the moment you, you tame me. You carve off my edges. The moment when you make and carve an image is when you stop listening to my voice and you start listening to your own. I will reveal who I am in my own way, by my own words and my own action, and I'll be worshipped on my terms. Now, we know this is a temptation, don't we? 
the moment where we see the God in the Bible and we, we want to make decisions about who he is, about the kind of God he's like. We want to carve off bits here and bits there. We want to make him more like the things we know in the world, about the images and, and the people and, and the ideas that we've seen. And so we carve out and we end up making something that is not him. And we, we stop listening to his voice and we start listening to our voice. And tragically, we go back into slavery because we're not worshipping him anymore. We're worshipping the God of our own imagining and the skill of our own hands. If you want to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, it has to be on his terms and not your own. But the third thing is that in the third commandment, and this is the, can I understand, people misunderstand this commandment massively, and I kind of get why and I kind of don't understand why at the same time. The third one is, and the third thing is, is that you have to worship God with integrity, which is what the third commandment is actually about. It says, you shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, in verse 11, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Now, name is not, you know, God, Yahweh, Jesus, Christ, you know. Misusing those things is probably unwise, but not what this is talking about. In the ancient world, name was reputation. It was representation. It was the substance of the person as revealed in their action and in their words. And what happened in Israel's life is they had above their head the banner, Yahweh, the God of Israel, the God of the Exodus. But then they lived however they felt like. They worshipped Baals. They ended up at one point worshipping a god named Molech. And Molech was this big kind of cupboard with a, like an animal head. And you used to put things into the drawers and behind the drawers was a burning fire. Do you know what you put in the bottom drawer? Children. And there's a bit in the prophets where God says, what are you doing? That's not who I am. That didn't even enter my mind. You've profaned my name by putting my banner above your head, then doing those things in my name, because that is not who I am. You've misrepresented me. You've taken my reputation and attached it to Molech and the murder of children, and I will not stand for that. And you can understand why. What is being called for in the third commandment is that Israel lives as they speak, as Yahweh's, in his way, in his means, in his way of living. And we get this, don't we? We see Christians in the media all the time, and we're like, man, really? You know, you put Jesus above your head, and then you said that, and that's not what Jesus is about at all. You've, you've misrepresented him. You've profaned his name and what he's about. And yet we too, we know this, don't we, that we put Jesus above our head and then we just go around looking like everyone else. We look like Sydney. We look like it's obsession with things and places and people and beauty and experience. The third commandment is the summons to integrity. To live out in life the banner above our heads and that God is not to be deceived with hypocrisy. In the end, it's a summon to a wholehearted, whole life faith because the people around us only have us to go on in their knowledge of our Savior. So trust God for your happiness on His terms with integrity. But just before we head to the next point, is well, what do you do if you, you, that's not happening? 
And I reckon actually the fourth commandment is really helpful. The fourth commandment is actually a pattern of living that helps you do the first three. What's the fourth one? Observe the Sabbath day by keeping it holy as the Lord your God has commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. You see, Sabbath is radical resistance against every idolatry, every religious practice ever. Sabbath is when you stop from all the other things you're doing in acknowledgement that there is nothing in your life that can secure your happiness, your success, your comfort, your power. Nothing can secure those things but the goodness of God alone. I don't need to work today because the goodness of God will run my life. I don't need to worry today about the things I've been worrying about all week because God runs my life. When it is that I stop on Sabbath and think about the life I'm living and realize the mismatch and hypocrisy between the two, I give myself back to him. When I consider the God I've been worshiping and realize that I've made an image and I listen and I worship again, I get recalibrated to worship on his terms. Sabbath, a principle of stopping in the rhythm of life daily in little moments, weekly in big moments, monthly, yearly in longer stretches to recalibrate in worship safeguards our love in a way nothing else can, the rhythm of Sabbath. You see, one of the reasons why we constantly feel exhausted despite the fact we take holidays is that we're good at physical, emotional rest and hopeless at spiritual rest. Sabbath is to the Lord your God. It's a moment not just of stopping, but of resting in the goodness of your Father. So that actually the ticking anxiety of longing for success and control and comfort comes to a rest in his goodness. That's real rest. That's Sabbath. Stitch it through your life. So love God. That's the first four. The second four, second six, sorry, there's, there's ten, uh, is about loving your neighbor. And I think it's really in the second half that you really start to see how the Ten Commandments have shaped Western society. And the thing to really notice here, and the thing I want to unpack, is the high view of humanity that's here. There is an extraordinary view of the value of human life that cannot be found in any other ancient source. In fact, Jürgen Habermas, who is an atheist, um, he's a political philosopher, um, he says this, egalitarian universalism, do good to everyone, everyone's equal, right? fancy way of saying that, from which sprang the ideas of freedom, human rights, and democracy, is the direct heir to the Judaic ethic of justice and the Christian ethic of love. To this day, there is no alternative to it. Isn't that fascinating? Something about love and justice that grows out of the law of of Judaism and into the life and the teachings of Jesus that has founded the way we do life extraordinarily. Let me unpack how that works. Six things in these six commandments. Oh, don't want to go there yet. First thing, I'm going to go real quick. Sorry about that. Um, That is that everyone has the right to rest. Did you notice that in the Sabbath commandment? Did you notice the massive long list of who is not to work? Like, it includes donkeys. 
Have you let your donkey rest recently, friends? Uh, look, the, the alien within your gates. The asylum seeker. Your manservant, your maidservant. Everyone gets a break on the Sabbath. Remember the history? They've been in slavery. You don't get breaks in slavery, in case you're wondering. You just have to work and work and work and work and work. And yet Israel is being set up in a different way, in such a way that everyone has equal right to rest. doesn't matter if you are just working in the field or you're working in the palace. Everyone rests on the Sabbath. Everyone has the right to the human break of worship and recuperation. It's an extraordinary thing. The second thing uh, is the honoring of the elderly in society. Verse 16, honor your father and your mother as the Lord your God has commanded you, so that you may live long and that it may go well with you in the land your God is giving you. Those who are your father and your mother, no matter how old they are, are worth honor. Mother and Robinson says something fun about this. I really like this. Talking about this commandment in the book through John Ames. Every human being is worthy of honor. But... Uh, the conscious discipline of honor is learned from this setting apart of mother and the father, who usually labor, are heavy laden, and maybe cranky, or stingy, or ignorant, or overbearing. See what she's saying? If you want to learn how to value every human life, do you know the way you learn to do that? You learn to love your parents. Because you get to see them in all of their mess. And if you can honor them, in the mess of life, in the stinginess, the crankiness, the ignorance, and the overbearing sinfulness that, that you experience in them, you will learn to value all of humanity. So what is coming to the fore here is that no matter how old someone is and no matter how much support they need, no matter if they're perceived as a burden, their life is still valuable to society. See the lifting of the view of humanity here? The third thing is that everyone's life should be protected. You shall not murder. The word murder is also the word for manslaughter. For any attempt at uh, the safety of someone else's life. Notice how there's no caveat here. There's no you know, income benchmark. There's no social security kind of mark for who should be protected and who shouldn't be. It is everyone's life is worth protecting no matter who they are no matter what utility they have, their life is valuable. Extraordinary. Just to say on the side for a second that this doesn't actually prohibit war as a command either. Um, there's a word that you'd use that's different to the word that's used here. The word haraga means to slay, um, but it's not used here. So it's not actually a prohib- prohibiting war, but it is prohibiting any lack of protection of life within the civil community. An extraordinary privilege. The fourth one is that everyone's marriage should be upheld. That the private beauty of sexual intimacy cannot be taken from someone. It cannot be ripped away from them. You cannot walk into someone else's marriage and take their spouse away. Because that is a protected and sacred and beautiful part of society. That's the way this commandment is phrased. It's about committing adultery. It's about the breaking down of someone else's marriage. And so it's, it's giving rights and space to marriage as a bedrock and a value within society. You can't just take someone's life from them. You're not allowed to take their marriage either. 
Then the fifth one we see is that everyone has a right to their own property. You shall not steal, verse 19. Everyone has stuff and you can't take it from them. Everyone in Israel was given a little bit of land. And even when the point came where they got so poor that they had to sell it to someone else, after 50 years, they'd get their property back. Because it's theirs and everyone has a right to a share of the land and a space in the land and you can't take people's stuff from them. This is an injunction not just against, uh, you know, stealing Pop-Tarts. Don't know why that came into my head. But against corruption on every level of society. You can't get rich by taking from people who have less. It has to be equitably distributed among all. You can't take people's stuff from them. And the sixth thing is that everyone's story has to be truthfully told. I love that. Everyone's story has to be truthfully told. Verse 20, you shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. Everyone's story should be truthfully told. Everyone's story is worth being truthfully told. In the court of law, when things are on the line in particular, you can see how justice grows out of this, how the court of law is based on something like this, that everyone's story should be known as it is, that people don't have the right to to change it, to alter it, to move it. People have a right to it. People have a right to their story and their property and their marriage and their life. And everyone should be able to rest and everyone should honor people even though they're, they're really old, they're not useful anymore. Can you see the, the highness of view here? There is nothing like this. There's nothing like this view of humanity. And there's no wonder that civil rights movements and, and the push for equality grow out of such a beautiful picture of humanity as this. This is the moral backbone of Western society. And if you can imagine a society functioning with these things, you can see how this can be a society of God before other people, how good this would taste. You know, recently there was a poll done uh, just around the census that asked the question, is religion good for society? Just imagine how many people, what you think people... said to that. You can say yes or no or unsure. 21% of people said no, it's not good for society. Two out of ten. Four out of ten said yes. Do you know what? Another four out of ten said they were unsure. They didn't know yet. They hadn't made up their mind. Four out of ten people in your apartment block today, in your street today, Four out of ten people in your workplace tomorrow. Four out of ten people in that family gathering, in that cafe, in that sport club. Four out of ten people are not sure yet whether the God of the Lord Jesus Christ is good or not. And do you know what is going to make the decision for them? Your life. The way you live your life turns the 40% yes or no. And can you imagine living out the value of humanity in this society and how easily that turns people to yes. And how easily living out what God says here turns into mission, turns into making his goodness known not just amongst us but to others as well. Loving neighbor as yourself is an extraordinary thing as the Ten Commandments unpacks it. So love God, love your neighbor. But the third thing we need to talk about is the problem of love. 
Because the reality, I think, in our Western world, and I've had this conversation, and you might have this conversation in your head, you want, maybe want to have this conversation with me later, um, is that people say, well, I get that Christianity kind of, this love for neighbor thing founded our society. That's good. I'm okay with that. But this whole love for God thing kind of seems unnecessary now. Surely we can just pull that one back and put it out to the side. Let's just love everyone on the basis of the Christian ethic, but get rid of the God myth, and we'll all be a little bit better off, won't we? Here's the problem of love, though. It's the Tenth Commandment, which gets you every time. What's the Tenth Commandment? Verse 21, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or their land, or their house, or their servants, or their ox, or their donkey, or anything that belongs to them. The problem of desire. Here's Marilyn one last time. The Tenth Commandment is unenforceable even by oneself, even with the best will in the world, and it is violated constantly. I believe the sin of covets is the pain of resentment you may feel when even the people you love best have what you want and don't have. From the point of view of loving your neighbor as yourself, there is nothing that makes a person's fallenness more undeniable than covets. You feel it right in your heart, in your bones. In that way, it is instructive never really succeeded in obeying that commandment. Thou shalt not covet. You see, the problem with saying, just go out and love everyone, is the problem of desire. Because you go out and try and love everyone, and they have really nice cars. They have a really nice house. And they have lots of money. And you notice it. And you kind of fall in love with it. And you're like, I should really get me some of that money as well. And all of a sudden, your desire has grown into an ultimate love. And what happens to your love for others when you love money most of all? Guess what? They stop being people and they start being objects. Who cares about that factory in Bangladesh? We're trying to make some money here. Those people aren't as valuable as as my life. Who cares about that guy? I just really want his wife. He's nothing to me. You see, what you love most vertically necessarily limits the love you have horizontally. And whatever desire creeps in and takes hold of you controls your love for other people. This is the genius of the Ten Commandments and the genius of Jesus' teaching about them is that you cannot separate ultimate vertical love and horizontal love. It's a stunning statement that makes sense of our human experience. If you love God and you don't love neighbor, then something's wrong with your love for God. If you love neighbor and don't love God, then your love will be limited. Because the only way to, to make sure that you can love anyone, regardless of who they are, no matter what they're like, is to love a God who loves them that way. Who already values them that way. Who loves and protects everyone regardless of who they are because he made them all and he loves them all. That's how you protect love. That is the problem of our loves. And we all feel it, don't we? We all have desire that becomes and supplants the love that we have for God, and we don't know what to do with that. You know what? The Lord Jesus not only loved God, he was the image of God. The reason why you couldn't make an image in the second commandment is because he was it. And when he lived life, he lived with perfect integrity. And he kept the Sabbath. And he honored his father and his mother. 
And yet he had all his property taken from him. He chose to go without a wife. He had his story slandered. And ultimately, his life was not protected. Do you know why? Not because he desired money or wealth or status, but because he desired you. And out of a desire for you, he lost all things that you might gain everything. And you see, the only way to get your desire under control is to know that you are relentlessly, deeply, uncomparably desired by the Lord Jesus enough to die for. It's when your heart locks onto that that you start to love God and every human's face starts to change in your eyes. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we see this wondrous thing you've laid out for us and we confess ourselves frail, frail in love for you, frail in love for each other and this world. And we ask that we might see a vision of your love that changes our loves. Father, we've created false images of you. We've lived without integrity. We've lacked love for others. And yet you love us. Father, infect us with that love and send us out that we might love others with that same love for the sake and glory of the Lord Jesus. Amen. listening to the Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church podcast. For more audio content and information about our church, please visit neac.com.au.